0: As we stand here, we're watching pigeons fly out of a fountain in the central plaza.
1: You may have heard that voice before on our show.
0: It seems like a very unlikely place to be doing a story that's about Bangladesh.
1: Kevin Hurden, how are you? I heard you've been busy.
0: I have. I have been busy. We've had a, a busy month. I was working on a podcast about the anniversary of the lockdown in Wuhan. We got access to some testimonials smuggled out of China. And while we were working on that, we were putting the finishing touches on this three parter on Bangladesh. Wuhan is a huge story, but this story has everything. We discover a secret that is at the very heart of the Bangladesh government by the end of this thing. And it starts very small and it couldn't end bigger. No spoilers.
1: I'm Malika Bilal with our guest and host of the Al Jazeera Investigates podcast, Kevin Hurden. And this is The Take. You and I are like ships passing in the night. We rarely overlap. So it's really a pleasure to get to chat with you today and have you on the podcast. (laughs) For those in our audience who are avid listeners of The Take, you will know that Kevin occasionally helps us out on the show as guest hosts, but he also hosts Al Jazeera Investigates. And he just put out a three-part series on a murder mystery involving Bangladeshi brothers that takes place not only in Bangladesh, but also in Budapest. What is the name?
0: It's called All the Prime Minister's Men.
1: So what can you tell me about it?
0: Yes, it it starts as a murder mystery. This murder happened in the nineteen nineties, and there's these four brothers. Three of them are gangland murderers. The other is the head of the Bangladesh army. He's the number one general. And in Bangladesh, the army is more powerful than the political part of the government.
2: Bangladesh army is right now the most powerful sociopolitical force in Bangladesh.
0: He is one of, if not the most powerful person in the entire country. And his convicted murderer gangster brothers were missing for years, living as fugitives abroad. And we found them. And we found out that he's been protecting them, that they've been using Bangladesh resources, like at least claim to use the police.
1: Police work as our thugs. Who needs regular thugs? Whoever has links with the police, whoever has the blessings of the administration, they are the real thug. They get cuts
0: of deals with the Bangladesh army. So people can't believe the detail. And we're just sort of now processing how this is going to play out politically in this country.
1: Wow. What a tantalizing synopsis.
0: (laughs) What's fun about doing these investigations is Every step of the way, you get these little endorphin rushes when you learn a little clue. We got a tip that one of the murderers was actually on the run and hiding out in Hungary. We had one part where we were looking through this stack of documents, and then we see this email address, and we realized, oh my God, that's the name of the top general in the country. That would make sense that this guy would be his brother. And then as you keep building and building, you do more undercover... And then they start getting comfortable with the people that they're talking with, and stuff that you thought would be unimaginable at one point. Now they're talking freely. — Hi, good morning.
2: — Hello. Oh, — Hey.
0: — Hi. — Hassan. — uh, Hi. Pleased to meet you. Yes. Two Bangladeshi men are sitting at a table. They're on a Skype call with a British businessman. He's actually an undercover reporter working for us, and he's telling them he wants to build a hotel in Bangladesh.
2: To do something in Bangladesh is a really great idea.
0: We set up a business deal to build a hotel in Bangladesh. And one of the brothers, he thinks he's not being recorded anymore. The call wraps up, and Haris Ahmed, a convicted murderer, turns to his colleague. I'll translate. He says, Bangladesh? Is in our pocket. And it's just like, wow, he feels like he controls the whole country. And he's a convicted murderer on the run from the law.
1: Sometimes it sounds too much like fiction to be true.
0: (laughs) I felt that the whole time.
1: Did you know that going into it?
0: No, we didn't. We, we absolutely didn't. It really started with a very simple idea that we heard from somebody who seemed to know their stuff that this man might not be who he says he is. And we found out that he's not just a murderer on the run, but claiming to commit human rights abuses. I mean, there, there's just no stop to how big this thing gets.
1: This story also involves you eating goulash in Budapest.
0: Um, Yes, I was eating goulash on tape, and it's something my wife pointed out how, how funny it is to listen to me eat, even in the podcast form.
1: Okay, so this is the moment, the sound of you in a cafe in Budapest, Hungary. Have a listen.
0: Budapest, Hungary, February 2020. And I'm in the mood for some goulash. How's this place like? Best goulash in the city, right? There are hundreds of restaurants in this town that serve the famous Hungarian stew. But this one stands out. You see, the owner is a very dangerous man. Goulash soup with beef cheeks and a cup. That's what I'm getting. The man who runs this place calls himself Muhammad Hassan. But we don't believe that's his real name. Are you
1: ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm
0: ready. Oh, this looks nice. Hmm. Yeah, that is good. The commitment to um, paprika is very impressive here. Mm-hmm. It's in everything. And as I eat, in a back room upstairs, this Muhammad Hassan is making a series of stunning admissions. He just doesn't know it's all being recorded. And what he's saying could shake the foundations of the government of his homeland, Bangladesh.
1: Incredible. What a scene and what a good start. So this is an aside, but how was the soup? (laughs)
0: Yeah, the soup was pretty good. Now, I, I know it seems a bit on the nose to be going to Hungary and then eating goulash. But in my defense, the name of the actual restaurant this man owned was called Goulash Restaurant. So there was no other choice but to have the goulash. Of course.
1: Of course. The juxtaposition of you ordering soup with the fact that you're there undercover meeting someone who you've described as a very dangerous man is striking. And what's so amazing is how you do these undercover stings. I'm guessing they aren't easy.
0: Well, I can explain that scene specifically to start. It seems very lighthearted, and I was in a lighthearted manner talking to, to my colleague, but but the reality was much more serious. I mean, we were in the restaurant that belonged to a man who's uh, been on the Interpol most wanted list. who's a convicted murderer. And I was inside with a secret camera filming to see if our undercover reporter was going to come in with the subject. Sammy's upstairs in the office discussing the terms of a business opportunity to purchase ammunition for the Bangladesh Army. Will is outside with the surveillance team. I was inside to get secret video just in case they came in through the front door. We got a message from, uh, a message that that things went well. That there's some interesting information that we're about to go get. And all we have to do is finish our goulash find out what happened. And... You know, they were talking upstairs as I was eating, and he was making some admissions that would that would be a key part of our evidence. So it was good food, but it's hard to concentrate sometimes on the food because you're thinking of all the other things that you have to do, including, you know, how the source is doing. A lot of times, these investigations happen because we find very brave people who are willing to risk a lot to expose the truth. And in this case, we had an undercover reporter and a source, and his name was Sammy, And um, he risked a, a, a heck of a lot to bring this story home.
1: Incredible. So this work took how long? It took about two years. Wow.
0: And it's one of the reasons I really want people to listen to this podcast, because there's just nothing like this. I mean, you know that one of the advantages we have at Al Jazeera is that it's about the journalism first and foremost. And we have the time to spend two years on one story. And that's how long it takes to do something of this scale. We were doing surveillance all over the world. We were doing undercover. We were doing deep document research, pulling records from from France, from all over Europe. And it takes that long to do it right. And this is the end result of of 2 years of investigating and we we nailed it. I mean, we got we got the goods and you'll see it in this podcast.
1: It sounds risky all around.
0: Yeah, so I've been doing investigative stuff for about 10 years now, and I don't think I've written a piece of television or podcast or, or an article that hasn't been through a lawyer in that entire time. So it's just part of the process.
1: You've been doing this for 10 years, yet because of the risks involved in each and every episode, there must be a million things running through your head. I'll tell you what was going
0: through my head is that this story is Absolutely the most incredible story I've ever done. This gang is connected in this way to the prime minister of Bangladesh, who herself is an incredibly interesting figure. I mean, not only is she one of the longest serving female leaders in the world, she runs a country of more than 160 million people, but she's also the daughter of the founding father of Bangladesh, who saw her family murdered in a coup and then came back and re-established her her father's political party. But to do so, she got connected to this criminal gang. So the present is tied to the past. The present is tied to the past. It's almost like if this was like a Netflix show, you'd think it was almost too extreme, but it's true.
1: (laughs) So finally here, when an investigative piece is done and you and your team have put the finishing touches on it and sent it out there in podcast and documentary form... What happens next? Because this particular one has made some news. You've made headlines.
0: Yeah. So I think in two days, we had two million views on YouTube. And it has just exploded across the Bangladesh social media scene. So you're seeing so many people finding this. They're, they're sharing low-res versions on WhatsApp groups. This is getting to people. And it's, and it's shocking people.
1: I think that is a really good place to leave this part of the conversation so that people can go check it out. I have one more episode of the podcast to finish, so I'm excited to listen to that after we finish our chat. I'm going to go download it. Kevin, thank you so much for talking to me.
0: Thank you, Malika.
1: So here we go. A chunky sample of the first part of Al Jazeera Investigates' three-part series, All the Prime Minister's Men. It left me on the edge of my seat. Let us know what you think.
0: So let me set the scene for you. It's May 7th, 1996. A young Bangladeshi political activist is slowly making his way across town. It's early afternoon. The streets are jammed. It's humid, it's smoggy, it's monsoon season in Dhaka, is what it is. His name is Mustafa Rahman. He's a bit radical, he's hot-headed, controversial, and that's dangerous because his party, the right-wing Bangladesh Freedom Party, has some very powerful enemies. He's 35 years old, and in just a few minutes, he'll be staring down the barrel of a gun. He's riding in a baby taxi. It's one of those motorized rickshaws you see everywhere in the Bangladeshi capital. Along the way, he sees someone he knows on the street in the Mohammedpur neighborhood. He stops to say hello. But there are others waiting for him and suddenly he's surrounded. Now, how these men knew he'd be there isn't clear. But what we do know is Mustafa was posthumously charged in an armed attack on the home of the leader of Bangladesh's most powerful political party, One thing that is clear is that these men do not want Mustafa to live. They open fire. Nine bullets hit their target. Mustafa is left for dead. Remarkably, he survives long enough to name his assassins.
1: My name is Mustafa Rahman. Joseph,
0: Harris and Anis have shot me. Joseph, Haris, and Anis, otherwise known here as the Ahmed clan. They are members of an infamous and powerful family in Bangladesh. Infamous for the crimes they've been convicted of and powerful for the connections which go right to the top of the political and military establishment. In 1996, Mustafa implicates three of the Ahmed brothers during his testimony to police on his deathbed in the hospital. We've reenacted it here.
1: The others had pistols in their hands, and they shot at random.
0: His wife made written
1: statements too.
0: Joseph stuck his pistol in my husband's bag.
1: Harris shot me with a licensed gun.
0: And immediately shot and injured my husband.
1: I fell down. Joseph took the pistol from my waist. I was shot nine times.
2: After that,
0: The criminals kicked my husband and left him on the roadside and fled.
1: Northwest along the Shat Road.
0: Mustafa died from his injuries two weeks later, leaving his wife to seek justice on her own. For some time, the criminal Joseph and his cronies have been trying to extract protection money from my husband. My plea is that he will take the rightful legal action against the accused. This is Al Jazeera Investigates. I'm Kevin Hurton. We're calling this series All the Prime Minister's Men. It's a story in three parts about murder, revenge, and corruption. We've exposed a cover-up that goes to the very top of the Bangladesh government, and it shows how a crime family is now at the center of power. In this episode, we track two parallel stories. One is about the favored daughter of a political dynasty and the current prime minister of Bangladesh. The other is about a street gang of brothers who grew up in poverty in Dhaka, each climbing their own ranks to achieve power and influence until one day their lives would converge with the prime minister. They are the Ahmed clan, brothers Anis, Haris, and Joseph, and the prime minister of Bangladesh, Sheikh Sina, one of the world's longest serving leaders and the head of a nation of 160 million people. These two stories provide the backdrop of our investigation and what we discover is a secret at the heart of the government. Joining me for this episode is Phil Rees, Al Jazeera's Director of Investigative Journalism. He first reported on Bangladesh nearly three decades ago and knows South Asia well. He'll help explain how the country's violent history collides with the recent political abuses that we've uncovered. Phil, welcome.
2: Well, Kevin, hi, thank you. I mean, one thing, by the way, you need to understand about Bangladesh during its short history as a nation is that the present is never far from what's been a really bloody past.
0: As the new dominions of Pakistan and India take over their own affairs, communal hatred...
2: Well, the petition of British India was based on religion and tragically bathed in blood. Uh, there was turmoil as millions fled their homes, traveling in opposite directions across new borders to find sanctuary with fellow believers. <laughs> So, in 1947, a newly independent India, made up of states with a Hindu majority, was in the middle. And then with two parts of Pakistan, and remember, made up of states with Muslim majorities, were on either side of this. Separated by a thousand miles of another nation, the Republic of India. The people of West Pakistan and the people of East Pakistan speak different languages, live in different climates, eat different foods, but they pray to God in the same way. Back then, there was no Bangladesh. It was called East Pakistan. And the capital of this geographically disconnected country was in the West, now modern-day Pakistan. West Pakistan seemed to look down on the people in the East and even refused to recognize the language spoken there. So in the 1960s, a secessionist movement took root, led by Sheikh Mujibor Rahman. I want the
1: 70 million people of my
2: Bangladesh should be emancipated. Mujib, as some affectionately call him, won elections but he was then arrested and a conflict broke out between Pakistan state forces and militias fighting for independence for the eastern part of the state. Between 300,000, some even say as many as 3 million people were killed in the civil war. Finally, Indian troops who backed Mujib invaded East Pakistan and routed the Pakistan army. East Pakistan became the new independent nation of Bangladesh.
1: Because I love my people, and my people love me. And I can die for them, and they can die for me.
2: Now, initially, Mujib was a hero, but that didn't last. After the war, floods and famine swept through Bangladesh and the economy just collapsed. People were really fed up. And to quash opposition, Majib created a one-party state. Many army officers thought Majib had become too close to Hindu-majority India and too autocratic. Well, it wasn't long before his rule came to a bloody end. In the early morning, a phone call ran that there was a coup in Bangladesh. Now that's Majib's daughter, Bangladesh's current Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina. A few years ago, she was interviewed on Al Jazeera. In August 1975, less than four years after coming to power, Sheikh Majib and his family were assassinated by army officers. It was brutal. Three of his children were killed, and one of them was only ten. Sheikh Hasina and her sister were spared because they were living in Germany at the time. These Bengali people, my father loved them so much. How could they kill him?
1: So there you go. If you want to hear more, and I know you do, you can check out the rest of this pretty remarkable podcast, All the Prime Minister's Men, on their website, AJIUnit.com. You can find each episode there, plus the documentary, and many, many more things you may not have known about what's going on in Bangladesh. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Priyanka Tilvey, Dina Quispe, Ney Alvarez, Nigeen Oliay, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer, Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. You can catch more of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe, like, and write us a review. We're also on Twitter and Instagram if you want to get in touch at AJTheTake. We'll be back.